Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. We're working our way through the letter of 1 John. And as we do that, we've been tracking several main themes. There's the concreteness of the gospel with God working directly in the world. There is a dualism that emphasizes a constant battle between good and evil. There are constant reminders that what we believe matters as well as what we do. And finally, there's the importance of love on many levels. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for others. We pick up this week in the middle of chapter 3. We're going to follow it all the way through chapter 4, and this is where the theme of love comes front and center. This includes some of the most well-known passages in the letter. However, don't forget what came before. Every one of the themes we mentioned is essential. The concreteness of the gospel, the dualism, what we believe and what we do, and the love between God and us. In this author's mind, these are all intertwined, and he has some damning things to say about those who misrepresent the gospel. In the last episode, we concluded with one of John's typically confrontational statements. <laughs> the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed this way, John wrote. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers. Now, we talked about how children of God is a reserved term for John. Yeah. It doesn't refer to all humanity as it's used in the Johannine literature. It refers to those specific individuals who recognize what God has done in Jesus Christ. But notice, John has a litmus test. How do we know which is which? Yeah, right. If you don't do what's right and you don't love your brothers— he specifically means showing love to other believers in this case, then you cannot claim to be a child of God. And to emphasize this, John now trots out a specific example, an Old Testament example, yes. Ron. Yes, <laughs> He does it in the form of the story of Cain and Abel. As John reads that story, Cain killed Abel because his brother did what was right, and he didn't. In that context, then, the Christians John addresses are essentially the Abels of the world. Yes. They are the ones suffering because they are detested by those who don't do what's right. And remember, doing what's right very much means also recognizing what God has done in Jesus Christ. One thing becomes very clear as John plays out this line of thinking. The love he is talking about might include what we feel, but that is absolutely not the kind of love John really cares about. The love John cares about is a love that expresses itself in action. Oh, yeah. We see it in God's love for us in verse 16, for instance, where John refers specifically to God's work in Jesus Christ. We know love by this, he wrote, that he laid down his life for us. We should then see it in the action our love drives us to for others as well. So in the very next verse, verse 17, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? John writes again, the love John cares about is love that expresses itself in action. That thought certainly continues straight through the end of chapter three. John says, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Yeah. That's verse 18. In subsequent verses, John does seem to nod to the fact that this is a hard thing to do. Right. He recognizes his readers may find their hearts condemning them, but he reminds them God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. In fact, 
we can address petitions to God and God will provide. But that's precisely because we obey God and do what pleases him. Yeah. If that's where we are, if that's how we're approaching life, how could we ask for anything other than what God wants? That's the way this logic seems to be working. Right. And chapter three concludes with an important statement of God's command. That is the thing we ought to be obeying. It goes like this. We should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So obeying this commandment, as far as John's concerned, is synonymous with abiding in him and letting the Spirit work through us. John, we've got to notice a compelling parallel here. The gospel accounts give us the greatest commandment as love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. That's item number one. Item number two, love your neighbor as yourself. So here we effectively get John's version. Item number one was believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ, and item two, love one another. Okay. We could spend a lot of time on the significance of this, but for now, let me say just this. Believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ, implicitly contains the statement, Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Messiah, that was so important to John earlier in this letter. It's safe to say that John considers this absolutely essential to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we refuse to acknowledge the most important thing God just did for humanity through Jesus Christ, how can we say we love God? At least that's the way John sees it here. Again, a lot more to say there, but let's leave it at that for now. It's also been observed that love one another in the context of this letter means loving the brothers, loving others in the community, Ah. loving other believers. Arguably, what you never find explicit in this letter is the command to love our enemies. Now, John doesn't tell us not to love our enemies. (laughs) He just isn't focused on that command at that moment here in this letter. Here again, context matters. John is addressing a community in deep pain following disastrous division, if we've surmised the situation correctly based on what he said earlier. This community is also a persecuted minority community at odds both with their pagan neighbors, the majority of the people around them, and now with their former Jewish community that's separated from them. So John's concern here, love each other. Right now, we have to focus on the community itself, and the members of the community need to focus on the needs of the community. Let me put this another way. John is repeating the greatest commandment, love God, love neighbor. But he's rephrasing that commandment, making it very specific and addressing it to the needs of this particular group of communities. Continue to profess the work God has just accomplished in Jesus Christ, even though that profession itself may well have been the source of division, and then attend to each other's needs, that is, love each other actively. As we move into chapter four, we get an aside of sorts in the first six verses. John addresses opponents that he calls false prophets. Now, Ron, we've talked a lot about what prophets really are in the context of Israel and and also what they do. Right. Here we might say it's akin to what we mean when we refer to a preacher. Mm -hmm. The prophet is someone who claims to tell us what God has done, is doing, or will do. Typically, that telling would be related to a contemporary situation. A false prophet is simply someone who claims to do that 
and does it wrong. Right. So from John's point of view, that includes insisting that Jesus Christ is not the promised Messiah through whom God is working. That would be a false prophet. Yeah, there's no way around the fact that John is happy to dole out litmus tests. And here we actually <laughs> get one more. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's the litmus test. Notice this now goes beyond what John insisted on back in chapter two, where the statement was Jesus is Christ or Jesus is the Messiah. Deny that and you're just lying as far as John is concerned when we were there back in chapter two. At this point, John is fleshing out all the implications and it contains at least three essential assertions now. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one. That was the assertion from earlier in the book. Okay. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah has has come in the flesh. Note the anti-Gnostic sentiment there. Right. God actually did interact directly with this created world. And the Spirit of God bears witness to all this. Well, in the following verses, we get the very popular statement, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Yeah. A lot of Christians know that particular soundbite. I put it that way because that's how it's often used. Right. Although, again, we've got to put this in its context. As far as this community of Christians is concerned, it feels like the whole world is against them. They're constantly at odds with their pagan neighbors, and those neighbors are the ones who worship the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And if we're guessing right about the immediate context of this letter, they now find themselves at odds with some of their Jewish counterparts, counterparts that they once counted as allies. Yeah. No one is on their side, it seems. No one listens to them. And John is saying, don't worry, you've got this right. You listen to God. We can't help what the others do. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That brings us to what is almost certainly the most famous part of this letter. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In fact, John now highlights something very important. God initiates the love. This cycle of love, that is, God loves us, we love God, it begins with God. John writes, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As far as John is concerned, this is the reason we love those around us. We love them because God loved us. In fact, our ultimate goal is to see God's love perfected in us. John, I fear we may be starting to sound like broken records at this point, (laughs) but I want everyone to notice just how much all the themes now tie together. It's very much a web of interlocking ideas, and it's easy to get from one to another, but let's walk through it this way. Let's start with the premise that God actually has accomplished something in the person Jesus. We know that some will deny it, but let's take it for granted for now. Jesus is fully human. The stories about him make that clear, so God clearly has no problem interacting with the created order around us. Jesus is also the promised Messiah, so God really has been working for a thousand years and more through the ancient nation of Israel. 
the Messiah belongs to them. The Messiah is their promise. The very word Messiah or Christ makes no sense outside of their story. Right. The work God accomplishes in Jesus Christ is a work of sacrificial love. In Jesus Christ, God suffers and dies as atoning sacrifice, accomplishing for us as human beings what we can never do for ourselves. This is God's love in action expressed to us as human beings as plainly and directly as God can. For that love to succeed, for that love to have the effect in my life that God wants it to have, I have to recognize what God has done. In short, I have to believe that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and that Jesus died as this atoning sacrifice, somehow setting me right with God. Once I do believe that, the result must inevitably express itself in my love for others. If I side with God in the story of active love, I can't help but love actively myself. What I believe will express itself in action. For reasons we do not fully understand, there are those who simply will not accept this story. In fact, there are those who will actively oppose it. In John's words, there are those who are anti-Christ. Ah. There's no way around this as far as John is concerned. If you oppose this story, you represent darkness. If you accept what God has done, you represent light. You might not like the absolute stance that the author John takes here, but it is clearly where he stands. No doubt about that. He makes it very, very clear. Well, in the subsequent verses, the language of God abiding in us and us abiding in God resurfaces. Yeah. We talked about that last time, and it has linguistic connections back to the Gospel of John, Yeah, and those are very familiar connections to many of us. Jesus uses the same language in his long monologue to the disciples at the end of that Gospel. The profession of faith continues to evolve. It's not so much that the statement is growing, we're just seeing new sides to it. We have seen and do testify, John says, that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Savior and Son of God are as much a part of how we understand God's work in Jesus Christ as is Messiah or Christ. In the middle of verse 16, as we approach the end of the chapter, John restates this central thesis, God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Verse 17 says, this is how we are perfected in love. We know now that we can be perfectly confident on the day of judgment. When we encounter the famous phrase, perfect love casts out fear, yes. it means exactly this. Because we know God loves us, and because we see God's love playing out in our lives, in our love for others, we are absolutely fearless as we approach that time. John is explicit about this. Fear has to do with punishment. God loves us. We love God. We do not fear that punishment. But, and as we've said, Ron, with John, there's always a but. Right. But this love must express itself through us in love to those within the community. If it doesn't, we're not obeying God's command. With a bit of practical wisdom, John explains it this way, those who do not love a brother or sister they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Yeah. And with that, we've reached the end of chapter four, Ron. John, we're going to want to spend a few minutes with this, but before we do, I do want to observe the phrase, God is love. It was very important to a 19th century German philosopher by the name of Feuerbach. 
He was later important to Marxist thinking, which I think will make some people uncomfortable. But what he did with this phrase will startle many Christians. And for that, I think it's worth spending a little time with. Uh, we do need to take his critiques seriously. Feuerbach asserted that John was onto something really important with the statement, God is love. But John was dead wrong about all the statements of faith around it. And as we've seen up to this point, those are absolutely integral to the point that John's trying to make. But as far as Feuerbach was concerned, we need to turn this statement around. The real statement should be, love is God. That's what really matters, Feuerbach insisted. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of subtlety to what Feuerbach said, and we won't be able to go into that right now. But I fear that when certain Christian pastors enthusiastically preach God is love from First John, they land very close to Feuerbach. They might say something like, if it doesn't feel like love, then it must not be God. Love is really what matters, they say. Unfortunately, the kind of thing they call love would be virtually unrecognizable to John. Sometimes those who go all in on God is love are keen to emphasize that God's love is unconditional. Right. What we've described here in 1 John does not look like <laughs> unconditional love to them. In some cases, I think those who approach it in this way are quite content to say, John didn't get everything right. He was right about God being love. He was wrong about how far we have to extend that love. God loves us unconditionally, and what John is describing here isn't actually unconditional love, they would say. But is that the case? Or does John understand something about love that we've missed, Ron? John, unconditional love is, best I can tell, a modern phrase. Hmm. I might want to quibble with that phrase and say that true love is always unconditional, so the phrase is redundant, but there are, there are far worse <laughs> ways to go wrong than uh, that. Good point. When people talk about unconditional love, I fear that what they often really mean is this. If you love me unconditionally, then you will accept me as I am, and that means endorsing and celebrating what I do. If you don't endorse and celebrate what I do, then you do not love me. If that's what someone means by unconditional love, then no, that's not the love John is talking about. And to be very clear, that's not the love John believes God has for us either. There is a deep flaw in the idea that if I love someone unconditionally, I have to accept them as they are along with the implication of celebrating what they do. If I love you and you're engaged in self-destructive behavior, it is precisely my love for you that demands I not endorse or celebrate what you do. I love you. And because I love you, I want you to stop hurting yourself. In short, I want you to change. Now, this is where it gets complicated. When we disagree on what constitutes self-destructive behavior, we sometimes end up in a strange place. One side says, you're hurting yourself. I want you to stop. And I want you to stop because I love you. The other side says, I'm not hurting myself. You don't accept me as I am. You won't endorse what I do. Therefore, you don't love me. <laughs> That's exactly right. In this case, the twisted understanding of unconditional love confuses the conversation. It hides the disagreement about harmful behavior, and it hides it behind an accusation that one side in the argument fails to love. Now, just as an aside to all this, don't get me wrong. There is frequently a lot of unloving behavior in disagreements like this, mm. as there may inevitably be. I just want everyone to understand how genuine love might not accept you just the way you are 
especially if that means endorsing and celebrating what you're doing. Apply all this to John's understanding of God's love. God created us. God loves us. No one knows us better than God, our creator, and no one knows better than God what is good for us. What John calls sin, all the things we do that run contrary to what God wants for us, that is the self-destructive behavior that God's love simply cannot accept. It's because God loves us that God wants us to change. God's love is unconditional, but it's unconditional in the sense that God always offers it to us. Nothing we can do will keep God from extending that love to us unless we respond in love, though, until we start acting like we really do love God, like we've sided with God, like we don't want to hurt ourselves and others. God's love cannot make the difference in our lives that we need. God loves us. God always loves us and will always continue to extend that love to us. In that sense, it is unconditional. But God's love demands that God oppose the destructive and self-destructive behaviors we engage in. Say it another way. Parents hate anything that hurts their children. In the same way, God's love hates sin. That may sound shocking or controversial, but we wouldn't want it any other way. I hope by now it's clear that when John says God is love, that is deeply connected to John's belief about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, Savior, and atoning sacrifice. We are set right with God only because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. If we ignore or deny that story, we are essentially rejecting God's love. And as we said last time, the effect God's love has on our lives depends very much on how we respond. To take it a step further, God's love must always express itself in our love for others as well. If we look at our own lives and find that it doesn't, then we need to take a step back and ask if we've really engaged with God's love as we should. In the next episode, we'll conclude this series on 1 John by covering the last chapter of the book. There, what we believe takes center stage. Join us as we wrap up the series with John's concluding words. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.